The text for the sermon today is Acts 8, 9 to 25. Now for some time, a man named Simon had practiced sorcery in the city and amazed all the people of Samaria. He boasted that he was someone great, and all the people, both high and low, gave him their attention and exclaimed, this man is rightly called the great power of God. They followed him because he had amazed them for a long time with his sorcery. But when they believed Philip, as he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus, they were baptized, both men and women. Simon himself believed and was baptized, and he followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and miracles he saw. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to Samaria. When they arrived, they prayed for the new believers that they might receive the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit had not yet come on anyone, on any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. When Simon saw that the Spirit was given at the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money and said, Give me also this ability, so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Peter answered, May your money perish with you, because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this ministry, because your heart is not right before God. Repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord in hope that he may forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. For I see that you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. Then Simon answered, Pray to the Lord for me, so that nothing you have said may happen to me. After they had further proclaimed the word of the Lord and testified about Jesus, Peter and John returned to Jerusalem preaching the gospel in many Samaritan villages. This is God's word. So what does the Holy Spirit do? I think that's a challenging question for some Christians, at least in comparison to the question, what does God the Father do or what does God the Son do? Right? God the Father creates the world. We confess that in the creed. Jesus Christ the Son redeems the world by his death and resurrection. We know that that's the central message of Christianity. But what does the Holy Spirit do? Whole sermon series could be written on the topic of what does the Holy Spirit do, but I do think the text before us today gives us some insight in some of the basic ideas about the Holy Spirit and what he does. And so we're going to look at the text, walking through it in three chunks. There's kind of three movements to the text, and each of those movements of the text gives us an insight into some characteristic of the Holy Spirit. You can see those three points if you're following along with us on your notes sheet. They are the subtlety of the Holy Spirit, the inclusivity of the Holy Spirit, and the assurance of the Holy Spirit. So first, the subtlety of the Holy Spirit. At the beginning of this text, we are introduced to a man named Simon who practiced sorcery in the area of Samaria. And he was so popular that people actually started to call him the great power of God. He amassed such a following that that people were all amazed of of him from the highest to the lowest, from the rich to the poor, the high status to the low status. Now, this great power of God phrase might not mean anything to you, but it was pretty significant in their culture because the Greeks had sort of uh, synthesized all of their gods and goddesses down to a single male deity and a single female deity who they believed could manifest themselves in the world. Not in the same way that we think of God bringing himself down to earth in Christ, actually becoming a human being. This was more like they could project themselves into the world, such as an avatar, that sort of idea. And so the people thought that Simon was perhaps the manifestation of the gods on earth. And you might think to yourself, 
Okay, that's a little bit obtuse and maybe not applicable to our time. It's not like people are thinking that they are God and at least then saying that to everybody and neither are people really calling certain human beings gods. That's true enough. It's not really common in our culture for people to claim to be God. It does happen, but it's rare. And usually it's met with a whole lot of skepticism. But I wonder if what's happening here with Simon does have some pretty strong application to our life. See, while we won't call people gods, and we won't say that we're worshiping them, our lifestyles tend to be ones where we treat people or things or causes like gods. In a culture that has largely rejected the idea of God, we just fill our lives with things that do the job of God in his place. Maybe you find this with what I would call influencer culture. Now, I know influencers on a narrow scale are like these women on Instagram who sell you products by taking cool pictures, but I'm speaking more broadly than that. I'm thinking any person who tells you what to think, what to believe, how to act, what to say, where to be, what to wear, what to buy. You might find them on Instagram, or you might find them on cable news. You might find them on YouTube. You might find them on your favorite podcast. You might find them in a political office. They're the people who tell us how life is. Or they tell us how life should be. If only you would buy this or try this workout routine or vote for me, then things would be okay. As long as we can silence those voices, then we'll reach some sort of utopia, read heaven. They're gods to us. We'd never say it, that they're actually the thing that we worship, but we live as though they are our gods. We trust in them. To press you on this a little bit, is there a voice out there in the world that you feel like if it was silenced for some reason, that the world would lose something really important? If your favorite YouTuber was deplatformed, if your favorite cable news pundit was fired, would something be lost? It's because you think that they're God and you need their word in order to keep moving forward. Or the inverse is true, right? If you think there's a voice out there that you really wish would get silenced, it's because you think that people treat him or her like a god. And you want that voice to be quiet. By the way, this doesn't just happen with people. It happens with brands. We have to wear the right brands in order to signal to other people that we are in some way righteous. And it happens with causes. We follow the right causes, post the right hashtags in order to support some movement that makes us feel like we're doing good in the world so we can declare ourselves righteous. And it's not that any one of these things is inherently wrong. It's not bad to listen to podcasts or sinful to watch cable news. It's not against God's will to support certain causes or to buy certain brands. But do you see what we very quickly do? We try to find who we are in these things. We try to find a direction for our life, a purpose for our life, a meaning for our life in the words of someone else who's not God. I believe that, was, that is what was happening with Simon the Sorcerer. These people had rejected God and were following the loudest voice or the most impressive voice or the most influential or exciting or interesting voice that they could hear, which happened to be Simon the sorcerer. But do you see what happens next? Philip comes into Samaria and it says that he was doing great signs and miracles. In fact, so much so that Simon himself was impressed by these miracles and yet what actually converted the Samaritans, what brought them into God's family, which caused them to believe and to be baptized, was that Philip came and proclaimed the good news of the kingdom in the name of Jesus. See, see, Philip was doing miracles. He was doing impressive, interesting, exciting, influential things, but the thing that actually made the difference where God actually did his work was in the proclamation of his word, which is where the Holy Spirit works. 
If you're taking notes with us, you can fill in this blank. Even though Philip did miracles, the word is what converted the Samaritans. And this is what we need to hear. It's so easy to get attracted by the things that are interesting or exciting or influential in the world. The things that seem to be making waves are causing movements, but the word is what God says he actually works through by his Holy Spirit. If you want a little bit more of a churchly application to this, I think it's common in Christian circles to do one of two things wrong when it comes to applying this to ourselves. On the one hand, we, we might follow something of like a celebrity pastor, a pastor who's popular, who has a big following, who gets tens of thousands of views on YouTube or as many people listening to his sermons on podcast. We tend to think that these people, because they're powerful or influential or interesting, they're the ones who are telling us the truth. And they very well might. But how do you know? Do you just trust the fact that thousands of other people think that they're telling the truth? Do you remember your anthropology? We are by nature sinful. Our skepticism should be on guard when we see somebody who is getting lots of views or lots of listens. Maybe sinful natures are active in this. And it's not that you shouldn't listen to your favorite podcast sermon writer, but do you realize how quickly we can listen to that voice and say, I want that voice, but not the local pastor in my congregation who will hold me accountable personally, who will know my name and preach directly to me. I want this sort of abstract message rather than the word for me. But lest we think that local pastors are somehow less sinful, we can do the exact same thing with the little lowly local pastor. Some people in local congregations will start to see the pastor as their conduit to God. Maybe they'll do this by saying, well, we have to know what the pastor has to say rather than just opening our Bible and seeing what God's word has to say. The pastor is the only arbiter of truth. And while it is true that God has called pastors to be responsible for the doctrine and practice of their church, I'm not the only person in whom the Holy Spirit dwells in this room. Or, contrastly, sometimes people will get so attached to a local pastor that when he leaves, they will leave the congregation as well because they weren't actually attached to the word of God. They were attached to the man preaching the word of God. It's all celebrity influencer culture. It's all attaching ourselves and our worth and our meaning and our direction to something other than God's word. And if that is the case for us, which it is for every one of us to be tempted by this, we need to repent of this and see that the subtle work of the Holy Spirit is his word preached over time. It is what converts the unbeliever. It is what is sanctifying the believer. It's that slow, uninteresting, mundane work of hearing God's word regularly, praying it into your heart, studying it with other Christians. It doesn't seem like it's doing anything today, like you don't feel different on Monday after listening to the sermon, but deep down something's happening, organic growth. The Holy Spirit is working in you in a subtle, maybe even unnoticeable way. Which leads us to the next movement of the story. After Philip starts converting the Samaritans by preaching and they're baptized and they're believing, he calls the apostles in Jerusalem. It says this in the text, when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that the Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to Samaria. And when they arrived, they prayed for the new believers that they might receive the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit had not yet come on any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Now, before we see the main point of this text, I think we have to answer one of the difficulties of this text, uh, because there would be those in the Christian church who would disagree with us about our view of baptism, that baptism gives you the forgiveness of sins and the Holy Spirit. 
And they would say, this passage proves that baptism doesn't actually do anything. It's simply symbolic. Look, the Samaritans were baptized, and yet they did not receive the Holy Spirit. So therefore, baptism doesn't do anything. So how would we answer this? Um, I give you three blanks on your notes sheet. I think there are three answers that you can get to this. There is a textual answer, there is a narrow contextual answer, and there is a broad contextual answer to this, and they will eventually get us to the main point of this section. So first, textually, I think the translation here is weak. And that's because the New International Version of the Bible, which is the translation that we generally use, is purposely trying to make itself as acceptable as possible to as many denominations as possible because, well, you got to sell Bibles to make your budget. So they try to sell it to as many people as possible and sometimes have to soften translation in order to make it sellable to certain denominations. That's what's happening here in this verse. When verse 16 says the Holy Spirit had not yet come on any of them, that's a reasonable translation, but it does not capture the word that is actually behind come here. The word that's behind come is a word that means something like fall on dramatically or fall on emphatically. To see where this word is used otherwise in the scripture, uh, Luke actually uses it in his parable of the prodigal son from Jesus to describe how the father falls onto the younger son when he comes back. He wraps his arms around him is how the translation goes. The compassion welling up the tears in his eyes. This is a dramatic falling of love on his younger son. Luke also uses it another place in the gospel to describe how the crowds were crushing Jesus because they were so close to him. This is not just come in the sense of arrived. This is come in the sense of drama and power. And actually, if you read the New Testament, you find out that the Holy Spirit does come in this way. He comes in this way with special gifts for his early Christian church. Now, the reason for this is that at that time, there was no New Testament of the Bible. You couldn't just go to your local bookstore and pick up the Bible to find out what God has to say to you. The Bible was still being written by the apostles at this time. And so the Holy Spirit would send gifts, things like being able to heal or special knowledge or the ability to speak in other languages that you weren't previously able to know in order to testify to the truth of a person's preaching. If a person was telling the truth, you couldn't go back to the Bible and check them. You had to see if the Holy Spirit was giving them the special gifts. So God gave the apostles these amazing gifts and gave the apostles the ability to lay their hands on other people so that they would receive those gifts. It stopped there, though. That second generation of Christians was not able to pass on these gifts, and they didn't need to. By this time, the scripture was written. People could check what people said against God's word. So at this time, what seems to be happening is when they believed and were baptized, they received the Holy Spirit in the same way that you or I received the Holy Spirit when we were baptized. In keeping with what the scripture says very clearly in numerous other places, like Acts 2, where Peter says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Or like Paul writes to Titus when he says that he has washed you in the Holy Spirit, right? He has saved you by the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, so the Holy Spirit had come on these Samaritans, but these special, extra, powerful gifts of the Holy Spirit had not yet come on these Samaritans. So I think there's a textual answer to this, but I think there's also a narrowly contextual answer to this, and that's the fact that Luke actually just tells us that this is how it happened. This is not normal. It's not normal the rest of the scripture. It's not normal from what we know theoretically from the scripture that people would get baptized and then not receive the Holy Spirit. And so the fact that Luke tells us about it makes us think maybe this isn't the normal thing that happens. 
Think about it like this. If you're telling a story and something like the air temperature in the place where you're telling the story is normal, you don't make a comment on it. Or if you're telling a story, you might say it was really cold that day or it was really hot that day. But if it was pretty average, you usually don't comment on those things because it's normal. It's the abnormal things that you comment on. And Luke comments on this and says they had not received yet the Holy Spirit. And so we actually had to call the apostles and bring them in and make sure that they laid their hands on them in order that they would receive the Holy Spirit. This isn't the normal way things happen. Baptism does something. It gives you the Holy Spirit. But then broadly, contextually, I think there's an argument here too, and I think this is the main point. And if I can pause before I go into the main point and take a tangent for a second, I think the fact that we had to spend the last seven minutes explaining everything that I explained is what Satan wants you to notice in this text. He wants you to worry all about what does baptism do? Does it save or does it not save? What about this unique scenario? What's the context in the text and the translation? He doesn't want you to see the main point of this text. See, Satan doesn't always just lie to you. He sometimes just distracts you. He says, go look at this good stuff. It's interesting, right? It's true in this case. But you missed the main point. So what's the main point? I'm convinced that this section is a small piece in a large narrative that Acts is trying to give us. And if you want to fill in a blank, that idea is called the multiculturalism of the church. Um, I believe Acts is the story of the multiculturalizing of the Christian church. What do I mean? Well, you have to put yourself in the shoes of an early Christian believer. You are part of a religion that has come out of a religious practice that for thousands of years has been tied to one ethnicity. And that's not a bug, that's a feature. Like that's on purpose that it would be tied to this one ethnicity because God is bringing a biological lineage through time and space to the coming of the Messiah in Jesus Christ. But now your savior who has come has said before he ascends into heaven, go and make disciples of all nations. And we hear that and we think, oh yeah, go tell all people. But the import of that for the original hearers would have been, this is not just for the Jews anymore. This is for all nations. And so I believe the book of Acts actually exists in the Bible to prove that point to us. To show us how the culture, or excuse me, how the, the gospel transgressed all cultural boundaries. It went into all the places where the gospel could not have been possibly believed to the go because of the power of the Holy Spirit. Let me show you how this is happening in this section that we're looking at. Uh, A couple weeks ago, we studied chapter 6, verses 1 to 7, where we heard that the Hebraic Jews were receiving uh, the daily distribution of food to their widows, but the Hellenistic Jews weren't, and so the apostles appointed Hellenistic Jews in order to take care of that ministry. You had Hebraic Jews reaching out to Hellenistic Jews. The text that we studied last Sunday was the stoning of Stephen. Do you remember why Stephen got stoned? because he was saying that the temple was no longer going to be necessary and the customs of Moses were no longer going to be necessary. And do you remember what his sermon was about? It was about how the Israelites had constantly rejected the prophets. And if you know your Old Testament, that's one of the themes of the Old Testament. My people keep rejecting me and so I'm going to give the gospel to the Gentiles. We come to this text today where the Jews reach out to the Samaritans which we'll talk about in a second, but for now, keep moving on. Next week, we're going, our next text in this series is going to be on Philip reaching, reaching out to the Ethiopian eunuch. So the gospel now goes into Africa. The text after this is chapter nine, where Saul, who we met last week, gets converted and is called to be the apostle to the Gentiles. 
Chapter 10 is about how Peter has to go to Cornelius, who is a Roman centurion, and explain and learn about the gospel now going to the Gentiles. And then he has to come back to Jerusalem and explain to all the Jews that the gospel now can go to the Gentiles. And then in chapter 11, you get the church of Antioch, which is the first place that the church is called Christians. And the reason they got that name was because they could not be called by their ethnicity anymore. Because what people did in that time was they would call your religion the same as your ethnicity because you worshiped your ethnic gods. If you were Egyptian, you worshiped the Egyptian gods. If you were Roman, you worshiped the Roman gods. If you were Jewish, you worshiped the Jewish gods. But now in the city of Antioch, there's this group of multicultural people running around all believing in the same God. What do you call those folks? Christians. Then chapters 12 to 14 is Paul's first missionary journey out into the Mediterranean world to preach the gospel to Gentiles. And he comes back for the Jerusalem Council in chapter 15, which is where the Jewish believers have to now figure out how are we going to handle the cultural conflicts between Jews and Gentiles in our church because there's a lot of Gentiles in our church now. The whole structure of this section of Acts is all about the church spreading out, breaking through cultural barriers. And so back now to the text that we're studying, the one that's highlighted up there. What's happening here? I believe God is forcing the Jews, those apostles, to go put their hands on those Samaritans, to embrace them, to bring them in. If that seems kind of weird to you, remember that it wasn't so long ago on this continent that white people couldn't touch things that black people had touched. The same thing was happening here. Jews would not go near Samaritans, much less touch them. But God says the gospel goes beyond that. The gospel goes beyond culture. It goes beyond ethnicity. It goes beyond skin color. We're going to bring people together because of this message of the gospel. And that leads us to the main point here of this second section. What is the Holy Spirit doing? He's bringing people together who would not otherwise be brought together. We would all been separate in our, in our nations or in our cultures, but Christ has brought us together by his Holy Spirit. Now, to make this real for us, Mississauga, uh, multiculturalism is kind of a feature of where we live. We love that part of our culture. Um, I think we need to be a little bit careful about that because just because we're a multicultural city doesn't mean there isn't at least prejudice, if not some racism that still exists among us. But for the sake of being a little bit sensitive to the fact that we're maybe a little bit more uh, multiculturally uh, comfortable than the average person on this continent, let's just say there are differences between us that sometimes are hard to overcome. Right, like it maybe isn't skin color or ethnicity, but maybe it's age. Like you're a young person, you don't understand those old folks, or vice versa. Or maybe it's, it's sex. You're a man, and you don't understand why the women have to be like this, or, or the women, you look at the men, you're like, why, do they, why are they like that? Maybe it's stage of life. You were a parent, you see parents now, and you don't understand, or vice versa. You're a parent now, and you look at those people, and you say, you have no idea. It could be education, it could be socioeconomic status, it could be any number of things that would keep us apart, but the Holy Spirit is here to bring those people together. The Holy Spirit's work is that people who are different would be able to unify over his word. And what a beautiful place that would be. Like if people would walk in here and they wouldn't hear millennials saying, okay, boomer. They wouldn't hear about boomers complaining about lazy millennials. They would see millennials and boomers who love each other. Or they would see people who have gone through a certain path of life loving those who have gone through a completely different path of life. He would see people who like different types of foods or spending their time differently, loving those who are completely different from them. That can happen. How? Through the Holy Spirit. 
and the word that the Holy Spirit brings to us. You know what unifies a culture, a nation, people? Language. Right? There's a reason that we all kind of know that even though Quebec is still part of this country, it's a little bit different. They speak a different language. They're different than us. In here, do you know what we speak? Not English. We speak Jesus. Because if your language is English, or it's Hindi, or it's Portuguese, it all can translate into Jesus. And that's what's actually going to be able to unify every single one of us here. The less we speak about ourselves and the more we speak about Jesus to one another, we will be able to bring together a group of people that would by no other way be able to be unified. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. Which leads us to the third point, which is the assurance of the Holy Spirit. So after the apostles come and they lay their hands on these believers, Simon sees what's happening and he says, well, give me this ability also so that everyone I lay my hands on may receive the Holy Spirit. And he offers money to do this. Now, at this point, you you maybe could have a little bit of sympathy for Simon. Like Simon's a believer, right? We saw that in the text. He believed and was baptized. He's a real real, genuine Christian and he wants to help ministry. He's like, can we spread this gospel message? Can I be part of it? But you saw the answer that Peter gave him, right? It's kind of harsh. Peter says, may your money perish with you because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in the ministry because your heart is not right before God. Repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord in hope that he may forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. For I see that you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. Whoa. Imagine if if one of you came and volunteered for something at church and I gave you essentially that answer. It hurt, right? So what's going on here? I think the answer is that Simon didn't believe gospel. And you say, wait a second. You just told me that he believed the gospel. Well, he did. He did believe the gospel. Maybe what I mean is that he didn't functionally believe the gospel. He didn't let it sink into the deep parts of his heart and let it define everything that he was. See, you got to think of Simon's situation. He was a sorcerer. He had people calling him God. He was a big deal. And now, he believes and is baptized and is just another Joe Schmo in the pew. I think deep down, Simon was used to being somebody being somebody important, somebody valuable, somebody who was getting stuff done. And so when he saw the ability to be somebody special in the church, he wanted it. He wasn't satisfied. He didn't believe the gospel that when Jesus says it is finished, it's actually finished. When God says about Jesus, this is my son whom I love, with him I am well pleased, that those words get transferred to you in your baptism, that God says about you, that you are his son or his daughter with whom he is well pleased. He felt like he needed to do a little bit extra in order to be important. Do you ever feel like that? I mean, I look around this room and I look at at some of you who tomorrow when you go to work are going to do jobs that are far more difficult and far more important and cost a whole lot more money than what I do. And you come in here and you're just another person sitting in the pew. And you might think I have all this influence and all this power and all this ability out in the world and here, I'm just kind of the average person in the pew. The gospel here is for you. Like, you might be somebody out there because of your actions, but in here, you're somebody because of Jesus. But maybe that's not all of you. I know some of you don't fit into that category. So let me make it personal for you by sharing something about myself. Um, I, I don't really ever struggle to believe that my sins are forgiven. It's not that I don't feel guilty, like I, I sin and I know that that's bad, and I, I confess those sins to God and I receive his forgiveness, but like, that's the end of it for me. I don't hold on to the guilt. I know some people do. 
But they, they do something wrong, and even though they've gone to church a hundred times and heard every single time that Jesus has forgiven them, and they take the Lord's Supper, and they know that that is God's body and blood making them immortal and perfect, they still can't forgive themselves. I know that's some people. Maybe it's my upbringing, maybe it's how I was preached to, maybe it's my personality that just doesn't, doesn't stick with me. But what does, what sticks with me nearly every single day of my life, is I'm worried that God's not proud of me. Like I said to the kids, it's one thing to have your sins forgiven. It's another thing to know that God's proud of you. I don't ever think that God's going to throw me into hell. But I kind of worry deep down that when I come to heaven, God's not really going to notice. He's going to see me as another person walking in. You struggle with that? You ever feel like, yeah, I haven't maybe done anything particularly terrible, or if I have, I know I'm forgiven, but every single day I feel like I'm striving a little bit more than I should because deep down I don't actually feel good enough? I think that's what Simon was feeling. It wasn't enough for him to be completely loved and accepted and acknowledged by Jesus. He needed that little extra thing. For me, it's preach good sermons, hope new people come into our church, make sure we don't lose anybody out the back door, make sure that you're feeling served with your spiritual needs. And I feel like if I'm not doing those things well enough, then somehow God's not proud of me. I don't know what it is for you. But I know this, the Holy Spirit is here to give you assurance. He's here to give you that promise that even if you don't pull it off in life, even if you're not up to the standard that you thought you would be at this age, even if you're not as wealthy as your neighbor or not as successful as your friends or not as loved as your sister or brother in your family, that you're everything Christ has ever wanted because of what he did for you. Write it down. You need to hear it. God is proud of you. He's proud of you. Is it Tuesday? He's proud of you. You just read a critical email from a coworker. He's proud of you. Your kids aren't listening to you. He's proud of you. You failed for the 20,000th time at that sin that you told yourself you'd never go back to. He's proud of you. You haven't lived up to the expectations of your culture or your parents or yourself. He's proud of you. He doesn't need you to be anything else. So how do you get this deep down into your heart where it is the operating principle of everything that you do? You stop looking at yourself and start looking at Jesus. This is a feature of Lutheran theology, which is maybe one of the biggest reasons why I'm a Lutheran. Lutherans are obsessed with stopping looking at themselves and looking at Jesus. You're worried that you can't beat that sin? It's not about you. It's about Jesus. Did Jesus beat that sin? Yes, you're free. You feel like you're not repenting well enough? It doesn't matter. Jesus repented for you. You're free. You feel like you haven't lived up? It doesn't matter. Jesus was perfect in your place. You're free. Stop looking at yourself and start looking at Jesus. And the Holy Spirit will give you that assurance. So let's summarize. This is the work of the Holy Spirit to come to you day after day, week after week, and speak these true words to you that can unite with other people and ultimately unite you with God so that you can move forward in your life unafraid, unashamed, free. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for giving us this example of our brother in the faith, Simon, so that we too can hear your gospel and believe it like he did. And to confess the times when we haven't, when though we know what the gospel is, we don't let it sink down deep into the, uh, the nooks and crannies of our heart. And so I ask today that you would work by your Holy Spirit, by the words that I preached, to convince us that we, you are proud of us, that you have forgiven us and made us holy in Jesus, not because of ourselves, but because of what he has done. 
We ask also that that message would spread. Like it did to the Samaritans, may it spread to the city of Mississauga around us, through us, so that we can join with more people in the glory that you have offered. Amen.